0: Amen. If you're in the Lord's house, say amen. 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 Isn't God good? Amen. Amen. God is good to us. What a blessing it is to be in the the Lord's house and to worship with with you all this morning. And um, I I want to say just a couple of quick things, if I might. You know, um, we've been supporting our our missionaries in uh, Kenya, um, and uh, they needed a new uh, vehicle. And uh, our missions committee and finance team told us that if we could raise $2,500, that they would put another $2,500 with it with that match, and that we could raise $5,000 for Maisha Kamili for a new vehicle. And um, we've, we've reached that match, okay? And so I'm, I'm thankful, and, and I know uh, God is going to receive the glory, but now anything you give above that is, is going to go straight into that as well. So, um, you know, it would be a praise god uh, size goal uh, if we could just uh, give a little more. But uh, anyway, we've reached that goal, and I want to encourage you in that. Also, the end of this month is Vacation Bible School. And Vacation Bible School is an amazing time when we have the opportunity to share the gospel uh, with the, the, the kids, the children, and even the parents in, in our neighborhood. And so I want to encourage you to do that. We need all hands on deck. We need lots of help. There's also uh, in your bulletin, there is a flyer there uh, that talks about uh, Vacation Bible School. It looks kind of like this. We've also got, if this is too big for you, we've also got these little business cards that you could take a few of those and hand those out. And I'm asking you to bring your neighbors and your, your children to be a part of Vacation Bible School this year. And if you if you have neighbors that that, that need to be a part of that, if you will do that, take an index card and and invite them. And, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, also concerning VBS. There's a a bulletin board right out here in the hall, uh, right outside uh, Casey Jumper's office. And it's got supply lists for Vacation Bible School. People say, well, I don't know how I can help. Go grab one of those index cards. Go get what's on that card and bring it back for Vacation Bible School. Um, real simple, Um, it's right out here in the hall, and also um, don't miss this, on the back of this flyer it says block party, okay, so um, July 1st, excuse me, July 1st, we've rented out Lions Park, the the water park right down the street here, and uh, it'll be from 7 to uh, to 10 p.m., and um, what we're going to do is we're going to invite our neighborhood to come and be a part of that. And I want to encourage you to to show up there as well. Um, What I would really like for you to do is I would like for you to show up, bring a neighbor, bring a friend with you, and introduce them to your church family. Okay, it's an opportunity to make some connections. It's an opportunity to have some good conversations with the people around us. And, you know, the Lord knows it's been hot. And it, it's a, a good time to cool off and uh, to fellowship with one another. So come and be a part of that. That's uh, about a month away, so you've got time to put it on your calendar and, and plan on being there. But we would love to see you there. Uh, bring someone and introduce them to your church family. You know, one of the, the most audacious things that Bible-believing Christians do is we edit the Bible. We don't like to think that we do that but we edit the bible and 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 the very book that we claim is divinely inspired we like to cut the parts off that we don't like and we like to focus on just those parts that we do like and and, and we're guilty of that and and you know when we approach the scriptures selectively and we only use the parts that we want to compose our own bible we Betray the very doctrine that we cherish. That God's word to us is without error. That God's word to us is is his word, the very breath of God speaking to us. And see, when we edit it, we, we, we fall short in that. But we edit the Bible in many ways. And one of the ways that I want to share with you today that we edit the Bible is that we chop the tales off of the parables. We read them until the part gets good and then we stop there, but we don't read the rest of the story. And, and, um, you know, I, I think that because here we have the Son of God telling us about God. We have the one who came from heaven and became a man telling us about what God is like. He's talking to us about life. He's talking to us about sin. He's talking to us about the kingdom. And yet we want to edit that. We want to chop off the end of the story. Take example. The parable of the wedding feast. In Matthew chapter 22. The parable of the wedding feast. You have a king who who gave a wedding feast for his son. and, 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 And none of the invited guests came. How disappointing. You throw a big feast and no one came. And so he took his servants and he told them to go out into the highways, the main highways... ...and invite whomever they found to come and be a part of the wedding feast... And so they go out and they invite people to the wedding feast. And it says there that, uh, it says in verse 9 of chapter 22, Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. Those servants went out into the street, gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Man, we think, hey, that's great. That's great. That's great. You know, an unlikely crowd came to the celebration when the invited guests didn't. What a story about God's grace being offered to all. What a great opportunity. Anybody can come to God's party. Period. The end. But actually the parable doesn't end there at all. We like it to end there, but Jesus continued beyond our chosen ending. In verse 11, in Matthew 22, it says, But when the king came in and looked over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. When you think about that, and the king arrives and he, he scrutinizes, he, he looks at each guest, and, 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 and he, he scrutinizes this ragtag wedding party. The ones that were uninvited, but they came. And, and, and he finds one fellow without a wedding garment. And to me, it doesn't seem like a capital offense. <laughs> but the man is bound hand and foot and thrown into outer darkness where people weep and gnash their teeth. I mean, what is this? You get invited to a wedding feast, and so you show up, and you end up out in the outer darkness, which could probably be called hell, because you broke the dress code? I mean, then the parable ends in a mysterious place. That phrase, many are called, but few are chosen. Is it little wonder that we liked the the story better when it ended at verse 10? When everybody came in and everybody was welcome? Those that experienced the grace of God? See, some hard work is required to properly interpret Jesus' version here. But that hardly justifies us trying to correct Jesus. I mean, the late Dr. Blake Smith, he exemplified what being a pastor and being a biblical scholar... ...that they don't need to be mutually exclusive careers. He was Yale educated. He was Yale educated and was was ready to shine in academic circles. However, he recognized his denominational heritage... And spent the better part of his lifetime as pastor of University Baptist Church in Austin. It was amazing because someone asked Dr. Smith to reflect on the parable of the prodigal son. And this is what he said. He said that the parable is, uh, the meaning of the parable is that the easiest place to get lost is at home. The easiest place to get lost is at home. You know I went back to that familiar parable. i heard many times as a child and even as a youth, and I, I read it again recently, and I brooded over it, and, and I came under the judgment that I deserved. I want you to read with me. If you turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 15, we're going to read the parable of the, the prodigal son. And it's, it, it begins in verse 11. And God's word says this in chapter 15, verse 11 and following. It says, And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country... ...and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country... ...and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating... ...and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. How many sermons have I preached on that parable and ended by reading verse 24? I didn't even want to add up how many. But let's read on. Now his older son was in the field and he came home and he approached the house. He heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and he began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him... Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But when he became, but he became angry and was not willing to go in and his father came out and began pleading with him. And he said to him, excuse me, but he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours and yet I, you have never given me a young goat So that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Listen, this last part, this last part of the most famous parable that Jesus told is often ignored. But it's vital to the point that Jesus was trying to make to the people he was speaking to. I mean, when we think about this... The fact that we call this parable the parable of the prodigal son... ...means that we have totally blown it. That we don't understand what Jesus' point is here. Because the elder brother does not even show up in our telling of the story. You know, our story ends well with redemption. With reconciliation, with them being reconciled. and, and, And then they're happily ever after. There was a celebration there. We don't know whether the elder brother... Was reconciled to his father, or even to his own brother, Clarence Jordan. He would say this of Jesus's. Uh, he would say this is one of Jesus' unfinished parables, because we're left to figure it out. The challenge to finish it. But folks, understand this: this is no parable in a vacuum. <laughs> Jesus was talking. ...to the princes of the chosen people. He was talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. He was talking to God's elder sons in his chosen nation, the people of Israel. He was talking to those elder sons who could not grasp the possibility of God's love reaching beyond them much less rejoicing in it. See, Dr. Smith was right. The obvious point is the easiest place to get lost is at home. You know, early on in our marriage, Tracy and I, we were doing our part by helping a lady uh, that lived on the, the block behind us she lived catty corner. our backyards kind of touched, and she lived across the fence. And we were helping her with something, and, you know, I've never really had a very good sense of direction. You might call me directionally challenged. But I have the privilege of being married to Grizzly Adams' daughter. Okay, she, you know, when I married in the family, you know, my father-in-law, he said, Ridge, do you hunt? I said, well, not, not really. And he said, do you fish? And I said, not too much. And he says, well, you do now. <laughs> but, but she has a great sense of direction. And, and you know, with the, the hunting, the fishing, the, the hiking through the forest, all of that kind of stuff, she can figure her way out. I can't. Okay. Um, and it's interesting because we finished our service to this sweet lady we got back in the truck, and I was, I was backing out of her, her yard, out of her driveway, actually, onto the street, and I, I turned the wrong direction. Okay, we lived right around the corner. I mean, just right around the corner. And I turned right and headed down the long way. And Tracy looked at me, and her, her agitation was rising. And she said, Ridge, where are you going? And I said, I don't know, I'm I'm," kind of turned around, I guess. She said, come on, we live right there. I was like, oh my gosh. You know, but, but that's the point, is it's easy to get lost at home. I mean, okay, that probably helped her coin the phrase, Ridge likes to take delightful long cuts. If there's a longer way, Ridge will figure out how to get there. But, you know, if if we want to be faithful to the intention of Jesus, I believe that we must interpret the parable in terms like these. The elder brother represents the church. Or at least those who claim to have a commitment to God through Christ Jesus. And the other brother represents basically everyone else. See, the prodigal son's story is beautiful. And it's brilliantly dramatic portrayal of the gospel. Of one coming back to, to the Lord. But the jarring truth is that I should identify more with the older brother. Like many of you. I'm a child of the church. My name was on the cradle roll before they ever took me home from the hospital. I grew up sleeping on Sunday nights on a church pew just like one of these. Waking up after the message was done to get up and get in the car and go home. I remember all of that. I grew up learning about God's love and about the story of Jesus and his great sacrifice for me. Oh, I've had excursions into the far country. I've done my share of that. I've taken holidays there. I've I've danced to the music. I've played in its streets. But I've never lived there. What I mean by that is I never moved in. I never settled down. I never stayed until the pigs came home, nor was I envious of their supper. See, my home has always been with God's house. And I was what you might call, you know, a good boy. I always came home at night. If I believe Jesus, that puts me in a very dangerous position. Because the easiest place to get lost is at home. Because when you're home, it's easy to forget how good home is. How good you have it. I mean, listen, the only people who take home for granted are those who are at home all the time. Think about this. Sometimes distance provides the perspective... ...for the real value of things. You know, when I get ready to leave and go on vacation... ...home doesn't look like much to me. I'm ready to get out of town. But you know what? When you come back from vacation... ...home looks like the most wonderful place on earth. It's like my bedroom! There's my bed! I can sleep again! But it's that distance perspective... It's that distance that gives us that perspective. See, most of us had to leave home in order to appreciate home. It's when you are away that you realize just how good the food was. And how secure the environment. And also, how available the love is. Oh, we're surrounded in it. But you see, one challenge. One challenge that with many people in our churches today... ...is that we've always been here. We can't see the forest for the trees. We've never been away, so we don't know what it's like to come home. But instead, many times, we eventually start focusing on the petty things. The things that we're not happy with. And so we begin to start complaining. And we begin to start finding fault in home... ...because we're no longer content... Send us away for six months, maybe a year. Man, we'll come soaring back like homing pigeons. Delighted to be here. See, with the exception of our homebound, and when I say homebound, I mean the people in our church family that are homebound. They physically cannot get out and come and meet with us. They would love to. And oh, they're so full of love. They love to hear about what's going on at the church. They love the visits from our people. They love being in touch with us. They want to be here. They just physically can't. With the exception of that group, the strongest expressions of affection our church receives is usually from members who have moved away. And they write back and they say, oh, we love Memorial. We love what Memorial is doing. We love what's going on. We love Memorial. You see, that perspective, because they are away, is very important. Some people call that like a military mentality. You know, where where the the worst place in the world (laughs) is the place you just came to. And the best place in the world is the place you just left. You know, I hate it here. Oh, man, I hate it here. But, man, I really wish I was back there. We get that perspective when we leave, when we come back. See, when you're home all the time, it's easy to think that you deserve to be there. I mean, that's what the older brother thought. He thought he was earning his keep. The whole time he was there, it's like, I deserve this. In verse 29... But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. All he can do is complain about it. He's just upset about it. See, home is where you live by grace. Home is where you live by grace. I mean, it's to be hoped that we would contribute generously while we are at home. (laughs) I love it when those grown house guests of mine mow the yard or take out the trash or contribute generously in some way or another. It's hoped that they would do that. It's hoped that we would do that at home. But understand this, home is not a business arrangement where we earn our place. Home is where grace is experienced. And along those same lines, let me say this. In the kingdom of God, there is no seniority. In the kingdom of God, there is no seniority. Everyone ...comes as a sinner and everyone stays by His grace. It's not up to us to hold that commitment. See, listen, deep in us we we find the need to prove ourselves. We want to prove ourselves. We want to justify ourselves. We want to be self-sufficient. And we can gradually slip back in to keeping score... Even after we've acknowledged that we are solely dependent upon God's grace. Boy, God sure is lucky to have me on His team. I was here on June 3rd. Boom! We try to keep score with it. As if we're earning God's favor somehow. See, it is so difficult to believe that God does not keep score... That even in our Christian pilgrimage, there's a constant temptation for us to try to make points with God. Well, somehow God's going to find me more acceptable. Somehow God's going to love me a little bit more. But you see, making points doesn't work in any kind of intimate relationship. I mean, think about this. What does it say about the friendship when my friend starts feeling like they have to impress me? Folks, you don't want that friend. The one that feels like they have to impress you or to keep up or do something to to win your favor. A friend accepts you at all times. Warts and all. The good and the bad. I mean, what does it say about a, a, my marriage if, if either me or my, my wife fall into feeling like we have to justify our actions? Where's the trust? Well, I did that because, well, I did that because, well, I did that because. Where's the trust in the relationship? We do that to God all the time. Well, if I do this, then you'll do that, right? Well, if I do this, then you'll do that, right? That's not how it works. We cannot court God's favor. He loves us. We stay by His grace. It's true with God. We're invited to be vulnerable and to trust in our relationship with God. You know how God's heart must hurt and bleed when we don't trust Him? When we think that we've got to um, justify ourselves or or we become defensive or or ultimately we become self-righteous. In our relationship to a most gracious God. I've been doing all this work for you God. You owe this to me. God owes you nothing. He owes me nothing. He doesn't owe mankind anything. And yet he has given us everything. See the easiest place to get lost is at home. Because when we're at home... It's easy to confuse physical proximity... With spiritual closeness. I think we need to hear this. See the implication of the parable is that we can be physically close to someone and not be with that person at all. We can be physically close. We can be in proximity with someone and not even know that person. And many times it happens in the church where we might sit next to somebody on a pew for 30 years and really not know that person. Folks, just because we're in proximity, just because we're in God's house, does not mean that we have a relationship with Him. Do not confuse that. We can be physically touching one another and still be out of touch. We can be here physically and we can be a million miles away. See, that was the point of Arth- Arlo Guthrie's play, Alice's Restaurant. You know, people bumping into each other. People talking incessantly. They were, they were touching, they were bossing each other around, but never belonging to each other. And we need to understand something this morning, that our society is characterized by spiritual detachment from others, even in a crowd. I'm not going to commit. I'm not going to get involved. I'm going to do my own thing and I'll, 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 I'll perform in my own little circle over here. And nobody, I don't have to get close to anybody. I don't have to get hurt by anybody. But the bottom line is you're still alone. You've not come into his court. I think this is important. Because folks, that is true aloneness to be in a crowd, and to be totally alone. See, people who have a strong church background, or who are active in church life, may assume that they have a significant relationship with God. Well, I'm down at the church all the time, or I I go to church every week, or I'm a part of of Wednesday services, I'm part of a connect group, I do this and I do that, so, so I have a relationship with God. That's not your relationship with God. That's like me saying doing dishes means that I'm married. Doesn't float. You know, that intimate relationship... The things that we do for God, it's not about doing, it's about being. Being with Him. You see, it's an old and important truth that you can be in church attendance every week. You can even be in the pulpit and be out of touch with God. Folks, it happens. You know it, and I know it. See, faithfulness to the forms of faith, for all its virtues, it involves a dangerous possibility. I want to give you three three points that will help demonstrate some of the advantage in which the prodigal son has an advantage. The first one is, he knows how good home is. He spent time away, and he knows how good home is. Secondly, he knows that he doesn't deserve to be there. Thirdly, he knows the distance that he has put between himself and his father. He knows the hurt that he has caused. See, his awareness of his need is unambiguous, it's it's clear. I mean, you think about this the one who went away to the far country, he's hit rock bottom. He's hit rock bottom and, and things are abruptly clear. He, he comes to himself. He comes to his senses, it says, and his choices are radically simplified. He can either die or he can go home. Those are his choices. See, the father offers forgiveness, acceptance, and love beyond his forest fetched fantasies. Much less his hopes. But there's rejoicing and there's celebrating all over the place because my son that was lost is now found. My son that was dead is now alive. It's little wonder that we want to close the curtains there. But notice the father is not yet at peace. The father is not yet at peace. He's concerned about his other son, the faithful one at home, whether he will come to his senses, whether he will come to himself. He wants the kind of maturity for his older brother that will cause him to embrace his younger brother with a joy similar to his own. To be able to say, I love you, brother. I love you, dad. Not, I deserve this. Give it to me. I want this. But, dad, I love you. And I see that you're hurting. He wants that same kind of love. And he, he, gained, he the father feels the pain of the possibility of regaining one son. But it may cost him the other. He looks in. He looks in sadness on the prodigal son. The one who stayed home. And my point is this. The revival and the renewal of the church does not necessarily happen when the world comes trudging in from the far country. We think that somehow when when there's a revival that all of these lost souls are going to be brought into the church. That they're going to be brought into the fold. That they're going to be brought in here. But folks, I would submit... That revival and renewal of the church happens when resident brothers and sisters find the same far country inside. That we are not where we thought we were with God. When they begin to experience this kind of homesickness. That I can either die or I can go home. That I can, that I, that's my choices It's so profound that that, that we want a family reunion. And that includes everybody, even those we have contempt with. Don't tell me we don't have contempt for others. There's people we like and there's people we don't like. And we make those choices every single day. And what I'm saying is when revival happens in this house, when revival happens in home... What happens is the resident prodigals get right with God. And when that happens. It will be so attractive. That people who are in the far country. Will want to come here to get in on that. You see this is what the gospel can do for all of us. Because. Those that are obviously far away and those that are apparently near. But the gospel calls us to taste again how good it is to be at home. To realize that we have a place at the table only by the grace of our Father. And to know that this Father receives prodigals. From a thousand miles away or from one inch?